Well, as we continue through this hour of worship, what a great reminder that as we go to God's Word, God's Word is timeless. Though it has been written, inspired by the Holy Spirit thousands of years ago, it has such relevance and application and life for us today. Because Scripture says about itself, it's alive and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so my prayer is that I get out of the way, that I don't snuff the life out of God's Word. And ultimately, as we start a brand new sermon series today, a reminder that we just wrapped up a sermon series on the book of Daniel called Faithful in the Fire. And I encourage you after this sermon series to go back to that one. You can go to either our YouTube channel or search wherever podcasts can be found. Look for Bel Air Church. And that Faithful in the Fire sermon series wraps up and begins a brand new one today. And if you are watching this either live or in the week after it is initially aired, and if you live in the United States, you know that we're right on the cusp of midterm elections. Now, I know that many people join us from outside the United States, and uh, we have different political uh, systems and governmental processes. But right here in the United States, in the, the democracy of our political process, many people at a local and a state and a national level will be going out to vote. And one of the things that I've noticed is that there's a lot of talk among friends, among families. I hear it in line at the grocery store. We hear it on the radio. We watch it on the news. And it seems like right now in this moment in history, there is a lot of talk of left and right. And ultimately, those represent two different political, not just parties, but worldviews, left and right, and what it means for us to, to be human, to be citizens, to be people that engage in this world. And I see this ever-widening gap between the left and the right. And as followers of Christ, many people are asking, how do I, as a follower of Jesus, how do I faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of this midterm election? Do I vote left or do I vote right? That's the question that I often hear. Well, in a world that is divided by left and right, I want to invite you as we go through this sermon series to have a bigger vision that God gives us in Scripture. It will enable us to engage not just in how we vote, but also how we see ourselves, how we navigate conflict, how we deal with bad news, how we deal with good news. And rather than just a left and right view, what would it look like for us to have an up, in, down, and out view that ultimately allows us to participate with what God is doing in the world? So in these four weeks, I've invited our pastoral and preaching team to join me in this sermon series. I'm going to kick us off today on up. And we're going to take a look at a very famous psalm in uh, the Old Testament, Psalm 95. It is known as the Venite Exultimus, one of the most famous psalms on worship in the Old Testament. Venite is, O come, Exultimus is, let us worship. And so let me read for us Psalm 95, verses 1 all the way through 11. The entirety of this chapter is written by King David. And as we read through this, we'll go right into what does it mean for us to first live a life that begins with an upward, a Godward, a worshipful posture in life. So let me read, beginning in verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. 
Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and the dry land which his hands have formed. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts as it was at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me, God says, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they do not regard my ways. Therefore, my anger, I swore, they shall not enter my rest. This, my friends, the reading of God's word as we say every week, Thanks be to God. Okay, today we're going to take a look at and study what does Psalm 95 have to say about worship? And there's five things that I want to cover today. There's a lot more things in Psalm 95. We could do a whole sermon series on Psalm 95. But the five things that I want to cover today are first this, the primacy of worship. Second, the value of worship. Three, the wholeness of worship. Four, the community of worship. And fifth and finally, the rest of worship. So first, the primacy of worship. This is true, not just now in this moment, but was true back then. You see in the beginning of Psalm 95, it begins with in verse one, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. What's also interesting is we don't just see in the Psalms, but we see elsewhere in the New Testament that there is a primacy of worship. That if we begin with worship of God, which we'll get to in a moment, it actually puts everything else in order. And if we take the things that God calls us to do, like prayer, like service, like discipleship, and if we put those things first before we worship, it begins to distort our prayer. It distorts our service. It distorts our discipleship. In fact, Jesus says in the New Testament, when he says to his disciples, this is how you are to pray. What's interesting is he begins his prayer with worship. He says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, it's interesting, that word hallowed is this ancient word, this old English word. We never use that word anymore in modern, everyday English. And what's interesting is even the very modern translations that we have of the NRSV that I just read from, the NIV, the others that are very modern that translate some of the old, you know, King James English into modern everyday speak, all of those modern translations don't translate hallowed into a new modern word. There's something about that word that seems to be untranslatable, untransferable into the modern English. Hallowed gives this sense of weightiness, of significance, of primacy, of adoration, of, of supremacy. And ultimately, Jesus, when he teaches his disciples how to pray, 
And the psalmist here, King David, beginning this psalm, reminds us that there is a primacy of worship. That when we begin with turning our attention up to the maker of heaven and earth, when we begin with worship before we pray, when we begin with worship before we confess, when we begin with worship before we petition for others, it puts everything rightly in order. Many years ago, I heard a a sermon that uh, Pastor Tim Keller gave on the Lord's Prayer, and he actually made mention of this briefly in the sermon. And he says, how interesting that worship comes before confession and before petition. And he went on to say that confession is looking at yourself and confessing the areas where you haven't measured up. And petition is looking outward at others and praying on behalf of others. And he said that if we don't worship God first, that ultimately how we see ourselves and how we see others is distorted. And therefore, we put something else at the top. We worship something else at the top, which we'll get to. That's the second point that I'll get to in a moment. And then it actually affects what we confess or what we think is worth confessing. And it changes how our prayerful petitions are on behalf of others. And he reminded us in that sermon series, and Jesus reminds us that before we get into anything else, and in this sermon series, before we go inward, before we go downward, before we go outward, we're called to go upward. Again, in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, if you're watching live, if you're here in the United States, if you're asking the question, how am I to vote? Or let's say you're not in that question right now in this moment. And you say, you know, how can I make this decision? How can I take in this news? How do I process this reality that I'm in? We begin by looking up, by worshiping. And the only way that we can worship is to understand the value of worship. The best illustration I can think of uh, is this. There was actually this true story. Many, many decades ago, there was a woman living in France who lived a very, very frugal life out in the countryside. And at the end of her life, as she knew that she was near the end of her life, she wanted to bring an expert in and to identify some of the things in her home, including her home, to evaluate it, to put it up for auction so that she could pass that wealth down to her children. And so this little tiny house that she lived in, this little cottage in the French countryside, had things in it that uh, in her frugality of life were just part of her everyday life. They, They surrounded her, but she had no idea what the value of these things were. And so she assumed that it would be a very little amount, but hopefully the little things added up could be perhaps a little modest thing that she could entrust to her kids. Well, an expert comes in, walks through the house, and all of a sudden gets in the kitchen, looks up, and cannot believe what he sees above her hot plate hanging on the wall in the kitchen. And he rushes up to it. This thing that is hung above her hot plate, not even a hot plate where she's been cooking for decades. Something that she's taken for granted, that just part of the environment that is just, you know, always around her that she doesn't really frequently look at. And this expert runs up and begins to look at it closely and says, this 
where did you get this? And she says, I don't know. I, I, I don't even remember. I, it just, it's, I, it's, I don't know. I don't even remember how I got this. Ultimately, they very carefully come back with gloves, very carefully remove it off the wall. Imagine it's been underneath this hot plate with all the steam and all the perhaps smells going onto it. And, and they take it and ultimately they analyze it. And they identify that this is a long lost art piece from the 13th century. And the scene is the crucifixion of Christ. And ultimately it goes up at auction at Sotheby's for $26.7 million. The value of this art piece went from being something that she had no idea its value to all of a sudden being more than she could ever imagine. And this wealth that she experienced at the very, very end of her life had been there all along. And I imagine if we were to sit down with her, she's no longer alive, but if we were to sit down with her and if we were to ask her, how did your perspective of that piece of art change when you realized its value? I imagine she would say things like, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Where formerly before, when she didn't perceive its true value, she took it for granted. I imagine it garnered her attention, it garnered her affection, that there was a, a thinking about it even when she wasn't there, when she realized its value. But when you don't understand something's value, you not only take it for granted, you can stop attending to it, you have no affection for it, and ultimately... That is, I believe, one of the greatest illustrations that reminds us that what we ascribe value to, we worship. Because the word worship isn't just singing. You know, we've reduced it in our modern context to just singing. No, worship comes from the old English word, worthship. What you believe is worth your time, your attention, your energy. What is worth giving your finances towards, that is what you worship. I'll ask it a different way. When you're done with your work, when you're done with your emails, uh, when you're done interacting with somebody, you know, let's say it's in your house, and you finally have a little bit of time to yourself in solitude, you're alone with your thoughts, where does your mind go to? Typically, if you look over a length of time, perhaps months or years, and you look back in your life and you say, you know, typically when I'm alone, I, I, I think about my future. And I think about what can I do to set things up so that I can have a better future. I would say that that thing, that topic, your future is worth your heart and your mind being focused on in solitude. And ultimately, I would suggest that that is what you worship. That's what you're focused on. That's what you give your heart's desire to, that you would have a, a good future, a positive future, a future perhaps of comfort, of, of security, of peace, of wealth, or a future that can pass on to the kids. These aren't bad things. These are good things. And ultimately, Augustine said many thousands of years ago that disordered love is actually the best definition of idolatry. You know, we think of idolatry as just, you know, bowing down and worshiping statues. He says, no, 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 no. When you take a good thing that God has given you, like your health, like relationships, like work, even God's blessings, and you take that thing and you make it the ultimate thing, it is now disordered in your life. 
when you ascribe ultimate value to that thing, that is what your heart loves, that is what you behold, and ultimately we become that which we behold. And the opportunity in Psalm 95 reminds us that God alone is the most valuable of all. And let me reread through a section of this. And there is an inventory taking that is happening by the psalmist that says that we need to be reminded of the value of God. And when we understand the value of God and the worth of God, we begin to realize and remember that God truly is worthy of our worship, worthy of our singing, worthy of our praise, worthy of our thanksgiving, worthy of our kneeling, worthy of our lives. In the same way that that expert came in and then ultimately came back with white gloves and took it away, they did an inventory, they did an analysis and determined that the brush strokes and the canvas and all the clues that made it realize that this thing is valuable. $26.7 million of value. And so listen to the psalmist right here who says this. Verse three, for the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. We'll come back to that in a moment. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and the dry land which his hands have formed it. There is this opportunity when we begin to realize that before we do anything in our life, that if we can pause and look up and reflect and remember of the worth, of the value of God, and ultimately, we can do that by looking at God's word, seeing God's faithfulness, seeing what God has said about God's self. We begin to realize that everything around us isn't built by human hands, but ultimately traces its roots back to the maker of heaven and earth, God. That there is no one like God. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have existed eternally before the foundations of the world. That everything, every, every snow peak, every sunrise every human being that has ever been made, that the cosmos that we live in, the fact that we have this ability to, to live on this earth with this mixture of oxygen and carbon dioxide, with the certain size of the earth and the distance from the sun to have this perfect gravitational pull for us to be able to not only exist, but to thrive as human beings in this planet where there is food, where there is shelter, where there is life, where there's opportunities for us to be able to to create things out of that which God has given us as ingredients. I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you understand the complexities and the intricacies of the cosmos that God has created. And when you just pause in the midst of this election, in the midst of your cancer diagnosis, in the midst of your promotion, in the midst of unanswered prayers, and you begin to reflect and to realize that there is no one like God that God is king over all the other gods. What's so fascinating is it says here, just like it says in the first of the Ten Commandments, that there are other gods. You know, here it doesn't say God is king because there are no other gods. It says, take a look again, verse 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In the first commandment, God speaks through Moses to the people of Israel, and says, you shall have no other God before me. Because God knows that ultimately we are people who are made to worship. King Solomon says that we have eternity written 
on our hearts and made in the image of God and in the world that God has ordered in the perfectness of God's creation. You can read about in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, that God made all things and it was good and we were made to worship God. And it wasn't that God made us so that he could have people worship him. Actually, there's a picture, we get this in John 17, that there is this eternal worship that is happening in the Trinity. And just to pause on this for a moment, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have existed for all of eternity in a beautiful community where they are self-giving to one another, where their attention is towards one another, where their affection is towards one another, where they are ascribing ultimate value and worth to one another. And you can say that within the Godhead, again, of the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit, there has been an eternal worshipful dance, if I could describe it that way. It is mysterious. It's hard to even wrap my mind around. But ultimately, Jesus says in John 17 that there was this glory that that Jesus had with God before the foundations of the world. And we see this picture in that prayer that God created all things, not to get more worshipers, but to give this love, to give this adoration, to invite people into this beautiful, perfect, worshiping community of one that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so ultimately, how we've been made, how we've been created, is to live our lives in a right-ordered sort of way where we bring our fullness of our identity, our hope, our longing, our significance to the one who made us. But as we see in Genesis chapter 3 and throughout the entirety of Scripture, when we forget that and we replace God with other things in our life, in our heart, in our mind, when we put ourselves on the throne of our life, when we put our material goods on the throne of our life, when we put our comfort at the throne of our life, when we put our need to be in control, when we put our need to always be right at the throne of our life, when we put our reputation at the throne of our life, when we put anything other than God at the throne of our life, that is the thing that we worship. And going back to the Lord's Prayer, Tim Keller mentions this in that sermon. He says that let's say if uh, our reputation is our Lord, And ultimately, what we think about all the time is, you know, how do I do things? How do I say things so that I can have this this good reputation? And how complex it is in this world of today with social media and is how hyper-connected we are. But if that's the ultimate thing in your life, ultimately what happens is we never will run to God if we're a Christian. I know that not everybody's Christian who's watching this uh, broadcasted worship service. But if you are a Christian, often what happens if your reputation is the Lord of your life, of which you've ascribed ultimate value to, you won't run to God until or unless your reputation has been damaged. And you'll go to God and say, God, help them to see me how I see me. Help fix this mess that I'm in. And often we will confess not the things that God longs us to confess, but we will confess things that ultimately have come as a result of having our reputation being the Lord of our lives. And then when we get to petition, when we get to prayers, we're praying not for the things that God calls us to pray for, but things that ultimately will bring us back into what we think will give us peace, a good reputation. And again, I want you to self-reflect on your own life. What is the thing right now that you believe that if you don't have in your life, 
all is lost. You know, there's some people, and I've been talking to you over the last number of months going into this election who are saying, if my political party doesn't stay in power or doesn't get in power, I hear it from all different angles, I'm going to lose it. And I see Christians missing the vision that God has for us. We don't take our eyes off of what's here and begin by looking up before we look into the world. We start with looking in the world and we ascribe our political party as the ultimate thing. And we think that if I can just experience my candidate winning this platform, being the one that runs the city, the state, the country, then then God is one. Then I'm at peace. Then I'm secure. Then I'm whole. And ultimately what we do in those moments is if we put anything above God, we, 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 we pray that that happens and ultimately we're going to end up brokenhearted. Because I got to tell you, anything other than God is something that one day you will lose. Your career, one day, even if you live a life of integrity, getting promoted, one day you're going to have to retire. And if your whole identity has been in your work, and I talk to a lot of people who have experienced this, that the moment they retire, they lose their identity because their identity has been in their work. For some people, their whole life is their kids. And once their kids grow up and move out, they feel like an empty shell of themselves because they haven't understood their identity apart from being a parent. For some people, it's, it's that next and new experience. For some people, it's their beauty. It's their looks. For some people, it's their health. For some people, it could be anything other than God. And ultimately, those things one day we will lose. And ultimately, there is a value in worship that is only priceless, that is only ultimately valuable, when it's worship in the one whom you can never lose. Because ultimately, God cannot be lost. God exists eternally. And God has offered God's self to us and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We will lose our health. We will never lose God. Scripture says we'll lose our life. Everybody is destined one day to die, but we will not lose God. In fact, this reality that God defeats death through the power of Jesus' work on the cross, this remarkable reality that there is a value of worship, but ultimately, if we worship anything other than God, it's lower in value. That actually, who you are as a human will become reduced it will become less than. It will become a shadow of the fullness of that which God longs you to be. God longs for you to experience a, a dynamic, profoundly significant life. No matter where you've been born, no matter what your opportunities in life, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter what country or city, no matter what people have said about you, God looks at you and says, you've been made in my image, I've knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God loves you with an infinite love of an infinite worth. God says that you are so valuable that you are worth dying for. When you begin to allow your heart to be melted at the ultimate value of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who not only makes all things, but ultimately says, I've come to you so that you can be in right relationship with me. It begins to put everything else in order. 
And so I believe that there's an opportunity when we gather together in worship and when we scatter throughout our lives to live lives of worship that we begin with saying, God, you are great. You are faithful. Even though I don't always experience it, you're there. And again, just to reiterate, in the same way that an expert evaluated and inventoried that piece of art to understand its value in a very practical way, worship begins by understanding the value of God. And ultimately, when we begin to understand the value of God, as we read throughout Scripture, as we reflect on God's faithfulness in our life, as we hear stories, as we'll get to in a moment, on the community of worship, we hear stories of other people experiencing the faithfulness of God, it elevates the value of God. And God, in our hearts and our minds, becomes priceless. And as a result, it affects the wholeness of who we are. That's the third point, the wholeness of worship. A lot of times people think, in a very narrow way, that worship is just about singing, It's just about singing, it's just about voices. Maybe there's an emotional response in that. But ultimately, we see here in Psalm 95 that it is a whole body response. I want to show you a number of things right here. Take a look. Uh, In verse 1, it says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. That it is something that isn't just internal. Worship is more than just thinking internally about the goodness, the faithfulness, the excellence of God. It comes out of us through praise, through words, through thanksgiving, through songs. And how significant that is that when we actually speak aloud the goodness of God, there's something that happens at the neurological level. Scientists have told us that when you say something out loud, it actually gets deeper into your heart. That even when you study something, if you just keep it within, it gets to a level of neuroreceptivity and depth of memory. But when you say something out loud, it actually goes to a deeper level. And there's something so important to realize that when we praise God, when we worship God, you don't have to be together in community, but we'll get to that in a moment. But even when you're alone, when you're driving, when you're at home, That there are opportunities to not only say out loud, but sing out loud of the praises of God. I've been thinking, too, about the significance of singing. You know, it's also been demonstrated that it is much easier to remember something if it's been put to a song. That's why the alphabet is put to a melody. That's why my son, who's studying for a test right now at his school on memorizing the Old Testament books of the Bible in order, he's memorized it because... Somebody put it to a song, and that was the only way he was able to remember it. In fact, there are all these things throughout cultures around the globe that something happens at a deeper level that enables us to remember better when we sing. And this reality that somehow in the world that God has made, that singing is at a core attribute of how we remember who God is and God's faithfulness and God's story. I love how in Zephaniah it also says that God rejoices over us with singing and to remember that as we sing to God, God is singing over us in this beautiful picture of song. It's not less than singing, but it's more. In fact, as it goes on, it says that it's not just our voices. It's not just singing. It says this in verse six, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
there is this sense that it's not just our voices singing, but it is our wills, our posture, our bodies. Kneeling before God, bowing before God, that there is something that actually engages more than our voices, but our whole body. And this this physical response, and I know not everybody is able to bow, not everybody is able to kneel. This is more than just the physicality of it. It gets down to a deeper heart posture to say that I, God, am lifting you up over everything else in my life, which is so significant because often we want God to bow down before us so that God can give us the ultimate thing that we want. But when we bow down before God and we acknowledge, God, you are God and I'm not. You are in control and I'm not. And I don't understand it, but ultimately I'm going to trust you and I'm going to have faith in you. And though I don't see it, I'm going to believe. But God, help me in my unbelief that there is this leap of faith ultimately when we bow down. But ultimately worship is a whole body response. And it's more than just singing. And it's more than just the posture of our body and our hearts. But it's also our mind. It goes on and it says, oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts as it was at Meribah and as on the day of Masha in the wilderness. I'll get to that in the final point. But there is this sense of reason, of listening, of our mind and our voice and our body coming before God in worship. I really believe that's one of the reasons why the greatest commandment Jesus says is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Worship is a way of life. And it's true. When you find something that is infinitely valuable, you can't stop thinking about it. When you find something that is infinitely valuable, you can't stop talking about it. When you find something that's infinitely valuable, uh, you can't stop sacrificing other things, other comforts, other things that are not as important as that thing to get close to it, to be near to it, to enjoy it. And we see this all throughout life, that when we take something that we love, we pursue it, we go after it, we sacrifice over it. We lose sleep, we wake up early to get in line for it. We go to school for it, we work hard for it. We put ourselves out there for it, we spend money on on beautifying our bodies and preserving it. We, We do all these things, and so we know this is a way of life. People are made to worship, but the question is, is what do you worship? And ultimately, if you worship anything other than God, Your whole body will live in response to something else. But when we begin with the primacy of worship and realize that it is God who alone is worthy of our worship, it demands a whole body response. And this leads to the fourth point, the community of worship. You hear here in verse 1, in verse 6, it says, O come, let us sing. O come, let us worship. All throughout this psalm, it doesn't say I, it doesn't say me, it says us. It says we. And I believe that there is this great reminder of the power of communal worship. And there's two things here. I believe that all throughout Scripture, we were made to worship God in every area of our life. And I believe that we don't have to necessarily come together in order to begin worshiping. And it says all throughout Scripture that we can worship when we're alone. We can worship in solitude. 
We can sing to God when we're alone. We can bow before God when we're alone. We can think about, reflect on God's goodness. We can remember God's goodness and greatness when we're alone. But something happens when we go throughout the week worshiping that when we come together in community, we don't come together to worship. We come together already worshiping. And there's great power when people come together and worship the one true God. And when all those other things have fallen into place, that we ultimately lift God up as higher than anything else in our life, when we reflect reflecting on the goodness of God that isn't our personal opinion, but the God that is revealed in Scripture, that when we come worshiping God in our solitude, in our private lives, when we come together in community, there is this deep and profound richness that happens at a minimum at two levels. One, we are gathered together despite our different backgrounds, despite our different education levels, despite our different weeks that we've had, despite our different histories that brought us to that moment, that we come together as a community, despite our different socioeconomic statuses, we come together despite our political preferences, we come together despite our genders, despite who we are and what we've ever done, despite our reputations, and we come together and we are united around one whom we lift up above all others and that is the living God. And when we do that, rather than coming with our own number ones, It actually unifies us rather than divides us. And Jesus is constantly talking about, the Apostle Paul is constantly talking about unity in the church. And the unity begins not by having a monoculture and having all the things that we like in our lives, music and food and all these different things. It's not about liking the same things. That unity actually begins by worshiping the one singular triune God. And when we do that, it actually makes all of our differences secondary to the reality that there is one God that we collectively are looking to. There's one God that we're collectively praying to, singing about, bowing before, that ultimately unites us. And the second part is that we come together in our diversity from our different backgrounds, from our different education levels, from different parts that we've grown up around the globe, and we come with our histories all looking at the same God, and in doing so, we look at God from slightly different angles. And all of a sudden, as we worship God together, as we remember God together, as we share stories of what God has done and been in our lives together, we begin to get not just a two-dimensional, singular point view of who God is, but we get this rich beautiful panoramic picture of God and God's faithfulness. And it's so beautiful that it says that one day in the new heavens, the new earth, that every tribe, every nation, every tongue will bow down before God in worship. And today on this side of Jesus coming again to reestablish God's reign and rule in a all-encompassing way, We now experience the kingdom of God. It's here. It's at hand. It's already here, but it's not yet fully realized. And there's this beautiful picture through the power of the Holy Spirit that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that no matter our background, we come together in this rich, diverse community, unified around Christ, 
And in doing so, we have an enlarged view of who God is that I found in my life as I worship with people who have grown up in Latin America, who have grown up with a different experience of what family was like for them. As I worship with people who have different education levels, as I worship with people who are younger than me, as I worship with people who are older than me, I can go on and on about the rich diversity that is Bellard Church. It actually, it enlarges my view of God. And the hymns help enlarge my view of God that we sing. And worship songs that repeat over and over a singular truth of who God is enlarge my view of God. When I hear people pray from a charismatic background to the living God, it enlarges my view of God. When I hear people who've grown up in the Roman Catholic Church and they have this deep, rich liturgy, and yet Christ is their Lord, it it expands my view of God. As people have gathered together from Anglican backgrounds, Episcopal backgrounds, non-denominational backgrounds, people who are formerly Muslim who have come to Christ, it enlarges and enriches. You see, in community, when we worship together, It gives us a deeper, fuller picture of who God is. But again, if we're not worshiping God throughout the week, if we're not making the God of the Bible number one in our life, we come together in community with something else number one, other than God, and then it reorients what our definition of church worship is, and we begin to see the differences in each other, we begin to experience a deep division And ultimately, it begins to unravel. And yet, there's this invitation. We see it here all throughout the New Testament. If you start with God, everything else gets ordered in the right place. And then finally, I want to end with the rest of God. On one hand, what an odd way to end a psalm. And perhaps some of you are like, "Can't can't you just end the sermon right there? Because what's up with the end here? Where all of a sudden... It switches from David's perspective, again, through the Holy Spirit, to the very end of Psalm 95, where it seems like God now is speaking directly. It says this, Do not harden your hearts as it was at Meribah and as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your ancestors tested me. The me isn't David, the me is God. And put me, that's God, to the proof, though they had seen my, not David, but God's work. For 40 years, I, this is God, loathed that generation and said, they are people whose hearts go astray. They do not regard my ways. Therefore, in my anger, I swore they shall not enter my rest. Some of you say, why, why end with this? We were on such a positive note. Now, why talk about anger? Well, what? No, please don't do this. This is significantly profound because of the goodness and the good news that this points to. It is speaking backwards to a moment where God was rescuing the people of Israel out under slavery, under Pharaoh, taking them to the promised land. That should have taken 11 days of a physical journey. And ultimately, as soon as they left Egypt, they began to complain. As God provided, as God rescued, as God did what no one else could do, they kept on saying, oh, we had it so much better in Egypt. And ultimately, it was their hardened hearts Their disobedience, if I could say it this way, they put something else as number one in their lives, not the Lord who was rescuing them, but they took their perhaps comfort, perhaps the familiarity of what they knew, even though it was slavery in Egypt, they put that as number one. And ultimately, 
This journey that was supposed to take 11 days took 40 years. Not because they were just physically lost, but because they were spiritually lost. And ultimately, God is saying, remember them. I promised a rest for them. I was doing all this work. But ultimately, they didn't want my work and wanted me to do different work. And they never entered into the rest of the promised land. And the psalmist is saying, do not do that. Allow God to be number one. Enter into the rest that God has for you. Just at that, it would still be confusing what helps, what rounds out the picture, which unlocks what this is all about. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament, it actually speaks back to this psalm, which looks back to that moment in the wilderness. And the writer of Hebrews says, they didn't enter into the rest because they were disobedient, but we who believe have entered into that rest. And to say it as succinctly as possible, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you rest in the finished work of Christ. And when you worship God, it isn't work. It is rest. Because you're worshiping God not to earn God's love, not to measure up to what God wants for you, not to have you know, more gold stars so that one day God can say, okay, you've made it, you've done enough, you're saved, come into my presence. No, that we worship God from a place of rest. That we worship God because God has first loved us. And all the work that has ever been done on our behalf is given to us and we receive it by faith. We can actually rest in worship. And it reminds us that God forgives us Not because God just forgives us and forgets, but ultimately because Christ has paid it all. And so friends, as we rest in the truth that Jesus invites us into a relationship with God, it goes back to Psalm 95 that when we worship, we actually, we enter into God's presence. And the Old Testament says the only way you can enter into God's presence is if you're perfect, if you're holy. And the only way we can be holy is if we measure up, but we'll never measure up. But Christ has measured up and gives us Christ's perfect record. We put our faith and trust in him. And so when the primacy of worship acknowledges that God ultimately is the most valuable of all, it elicits a whole body response in every area of our life. And then when we gather together in community, we get this richer, deeper, broader, more comprehensive view of who God is and it enlivens our worship and it builds our worship and it reminds us that we get to rest in this truth. That God is for us, not against us. God is worthy of our worship. Not because God demands it, but because God is the most beautiful and priceless of all. So my prayer for you this week is that you would catch a vision as you look up to a God who doesn't stay up there, but comes down to you. And as we go into next week, we will see what it means for Christ to dwell in us now in to transform us from the inside out. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you are good, that you are great, you are majestic. Help us be reminded of that truth. In the ways that we don't feel it, I pray that we would acknowledge it before you. I thank you that you give us permission to come before you with sorrow, 
even with anger, even with disappointment, as Psalm 13 models for us. But ultimately, as we bring it before you, we believe that you are worth our heartache. You are worth our joys. You are worth our disappointment. And in those moments, that is worship. May you enlarge our hearts now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.